When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. episode of Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me for this episode is the author of the blog Bob Dylan, album by album, Eric Gilland. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you reached out to me and talked about wanting to be on the show, and I, that's how I love getting new guests when people reach out and, and say nice things about the show. That's always a good way to get on the show. So uh, before we get into the song in question, which is I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, which is on side one on Bob's 1967 album, John Wesley Harding, I always like to ask the guests when they're new, like, uh, Eric, what's your history of Dylan? How did you come to appreciate his music? Okay, well, I can tell you a story first. I remember the first time I um, saw Bob Dylan. Okay, it, this would have been probably back in the early 90s, 91. It was on a David Letterman special, mm. um, an anniversary special. I was at that special. Uh, really? At Radio City Music Hall? I was I in the audience. Yes, I was in the audience for that. That's, wow, wow, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's cool, yeah. So I remember watching it on TV, and I was maybe 11 or 12 at the time, and I had never heard of Bob Dylan, and he came on and did Like a Rolling Stone, and I remember the performance, like, just being baffled by it, like, <laughs> he was hard to understand, and he, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, honestly, he didn't look too well, you know, and I remember asking my dad, I was watching, I said, you know, who is that, and he said, oh, that's Bob Dylan, and he goes, he was, like, really famous back in the 60s, and I thought, oh, okay, but then... A few weeks later, then I remember I think I was in the car and like a Rolling Stone came on the radio and um, my dad said, "Hey, remember that guy you saw in Letterman a few weeks ago? Um, that's what he used to sound like." And <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, "Wow!" I said, and I never really heard a song like that before. And just uh, I had no idea what it was about or anything, but just the attitude and, and the tone of the song really um, resonated with me. So. So that's when I became aware of, of Bob Dylan, and it was it was kind of a slow, um, slow interest I gained in Dylan. Like I remember in high school, I think I got the Greatest Hits CD, sure. Volume One, and then I think through college, I think I remember getting like Blonde on Blonde and really getting into that album and Blood on the Tracks, like the real top tier albums yep. I got into. But then it was in uh, 2008, I saw Dylan perform live for the first time and it seemed like after that I remember I was with my sister at the show and I don't know it wasn't like a fantastic show but it was it really I guess it, it must have done something to me because I remember after that we just bought everything like <laughs> got all the yeah like you know every album and just from that point on it was just um getting everything possible that Dylan ever recorded and I've probably been to maybe eight or nine shows since then and um, became a big Dylan fan. And like I said, started to write about Dylan a little bit. So, 
so yeah, that's uh, my my history with Dylan in a nutshell, I guess. You know. Interesting. That's great. That's really funny. Yeah, I was in, I waited in the cold for five hours to get in line to that show, but uh, but yeah, we were, I was there with some friends for, for that one. Though. That's amazing. Um, so what what inspired you to start the the blog, the album by album blog? I think it was just a a project. Like I wanted to write about Dylan. I just thought, well, just to go through each album and. My idea was some of them are just pretty much straight-up music reviews, you know, but on some of them I like to try to go out of that format, and, like, sometimes I'll write some some short stories or some, you know, try not to write a straight-up review, you know, and um, that's just kind of a project to, to see where it goes, and but also a way to kind of... Um, get a new understanding of, of Dylan's um, albums and you know I have to do I try to do some research and learn all I can about the history of the recording of the albums and how they were received so so you know it's good I hear from some Dylan fans on the blog and they they offer their their thoughts on it and I've heard some great stories from people over the years with the blog so so I guess that was why I started the blog just a way for me to to um, get closer to his music and maybe even contact, get into contact with some other Dylan fans. Mm-hmm. That's that's great that you say that because that's exactly the two reasons that I'm doing the podcast is as, as you yeah. put it, as you put it to get closer to the music and then to communicate with other Dylan fans. So yeah, that's 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 exactly I, I relate to that. That's true. And then you never know too. Maybe even to get someone who's never heard of Dylan or doesn't know much about Dylan. Who knows? Maybe they would um, that could trigger an interest in someone who someone who doesn't know much about Dylan, too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the song, as as I mentioned earlier, it's I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. It's off of Bob's 1967 album, John Wesley Harding. Uh, just to give anyone who's unfamiliar with this album a little bit of historical context, this was, you know, Bob Dylan had achieved pretty much the height of, of anybody's fame in terms of being a rock performer in the mid-'60s with Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde, and the, the albums were just getting increasingly psychedelic and and strange and uh, he was pushing himself to you know really physical limits and then it was in 66 that he had his quote-unquote motorcycle accident uh, and he basically absented himself from the world at, at pretty much the height of his powers the height of his fame and he retreated to his to his house in Woodstock and that's when he uh, was with his wife Sarah, and they started uh, having all their children, and and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a year later comes John Wesley Harding, which is an an all acoustic album of sort of these simple, moody songs that sounded absolutely nothing like Blonde on Blonde. It was a complete and utter change. One of the first of you know, well, not the first, but uh, you know, another key change for the guy in terms of his career. And John Wesley Harding really doesn't. It just it's. It's uh, what's that, that that Latin phrase? It's like "sue generis" or whatever. I don't know exactly you say it, where it's just it, to me, it seems like it's completely self-inspired. It came out of nowhere, and then Dylan never did it again, sort of. And this song in particular, uh, as the title suggests, is "I Dreamed." It's a, it's someone describe, describing a dream. It's only three verses. Uh, it's sort of a mid-tempo song. Uh, it's very sad, uh, at least on the, the initial reading of the lyrics. And the song starts with. I dreamed I saw St. Augustine, alive as you or me, tearing through these quarters in the utmost misery, with a blanket underneath his arm and a coat of solid gold, searching for the very souls whom already have been sold. 
And then he continues, Arise, arise, he cried so loud in a voice without restraint. Come out, ye gifted kings and queens, and hear my sad complaint. No martyr is among ye now, whom you can call your own. So go on your way accordingly, but know you're not alone. And then the song concludes with, I dreamed I saw St. Augustine alive with fiery breath, and I dreamed I was amongst the ones that put him out to death. Oh, I awoke in anger, so alone and terrified. I put my fingers against the glass and bowed my head and cried. And that's the whole song. And so I will admit, uh, I've always had a tough time figuring out what the hell this song's about. Um, if, you want to, if you want to take it in a literal sense, of course, there was a St. Augustine. Uh, he lived in 354 to 430. He was a Christian theologian and philosopher. He was never put to death. So Dylan's uh, comment here about that St. Augustine was, was – I wasn't one of the ones who put him out to death, you know, to me immediately suggests some sort of abstract metaphorical meaning because he's not literally talking about St. Augustine. But So, Eric, like what's – like why this song? Why did you want to talk about this one? Well, I, I think a couple of reasons. I think – first of all, I think when I first listened to John Wesley Harding, like this was a track that I really liked. For some reason, this was a track that stood out for me. I just think it's uh, – it's a beautiful piece of music itself. You know, I believe it's it's just a trio. It's just um, Dylan on guitar, and I think Charlie McCoy on bass, and Kenny Buttry on drums. Right. So just the recording itself is, is a beautiful song. But I think on a note, to get into the, some of the themes or ideas in the song, first of all, I think, it, you know, it's also based on um, Joe Hill, the, the old folk right, the song on Joe Hill. Hill. Yeah. Right, who was uh, a wobbly member of the International Workers of the World, and he was um, convicted of murder on dubious pretenses, and he became a sort of um, martyr to the labor movement. So, which kind of recalls Dylan's early music, you know, the folk protest music. Sure. You know, like it, it's sort of a rep, a callback to what Dylan had been doing, you know, earlier in the decade. So. There's that idea theme going through it, but also I think it also explores themes that Dylan would revisit much later in his career. It's almost like a foreshadowing because it's a explores spirituality. There's a heavy biblical tone throughout this song, um, a sense of um, a kind of uh, I guess a spiritual um, hope and despair, kind of battling with each other in this song. Which he would, you know, later, of course, with the Christian albums in, in in the 70s and 80s, he would revisit. But also, I think in his his later albums, like in Modern Times, would kind of deal with some of these this idea of being living through uh, a difficult time period where spirituality seems to be on the wane, and Dylan kind of dealing with that. So so I feel like there even though the lyrics, there's not a lot of lyrics in the song. I feel like there's so much going on in this song. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. one of the big reasons I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, I mean John Wesley Harding as an album is is really marked with uh, songs that are very short. I mean they're all they all tend to be except for the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, I don't think any mm -hmm. of them are more than three verses. But they pack so much imagery, and we already covered all along the Watchtower on this show previously, and that's another one that, you know, plants you into this world with all kinds of crazy things going on, and before you know it, the song's over. You know, you're like, well, okay, hold on, wait a minute, you know, 
And yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the that the the opening of the song talks is basically paraphrases the ballad of Joe Hill, which was a martyr. And here his here here's Dylan singing in the second verse, "No martyr is among you now." And so people, uh, I've read, you know, in anticipation for this podcast, uh, I read a bunch of interpretations of the song, and people are saying that the "No martyr is among you now" could be Dylan talking to his audience. You know, I'm not going to be a martyr for you. I'm because you know we think about when he recorded this album, he was he had given up the the mantle of you know the the, the quote unquote leader of the protest movement and the leader of the '60s movement, such as such as it was. Uh, I mean, you could argue the Dil- that the, the Beatles were that too, but Dylan it was focused on one man, you know, one guy. The Beatles at least could spread the the, the craziness among the four of them. It was just Bob. And so here's Bob holed up in his in his home in Woodstock, away from everybody, singing "No Martyr Is Among You Now." So maybe he's telling his fans, "I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go the way a lot of other people could go." And I read a, a, an interesting comment. It might have even been on your blog uh, where somebody said it might have even been you <laughs> who said <laughs> that Dylan, among his compatriots, seemed keenly aware that the '60s were ending. He seemed to be way ahead of the curve on that. And you sort of think about how, you know, by the late 60s, uh, a lot of Dylan's uh, fellow musicians were dead. Janis Joplin, dead. Jimi Hendrix, dead. Jim Morrison, dead. Uh, um, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, dead. And Dylan didn't want that. He didn't want that for himself. And maybe, you know, as as we know, through the mid-60s, he was doing uh, methamphetamines so he could you know, go on this punishing concert tour that he was on and constantly recording. I mean, for people who don't really remember or know, Bob Dylan recorded Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde in the space of 18 months, which is unheard, unbelievable that you would produce yeah, incredible. that level of artistry in a year and a half. And then you're talking only another year later, and now he's got John Wesley Harding. And so this was a guy that was pushing himself and so maybe he knew we're all headed for this crash, and I, I I'm not going to be one of those guys. I'm not going to do it. So no martyr is among you now. You know, like go look for if you're looking for someone else to die for your sins, go look somewhere else because it ain't going to be me. Yeah, exactly. I think that's definitely something there. And you know, I was thinking about this song too. Well, even the to be labeled, you know, the voice of your generation. Like I, I can't imagine what that would <laughs> <little> be <pressure>. like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane, you know, and I think Dylan obviously never liked having that put on him, but it, it was, whether he liked it or not, and and it was like this um, kind of cruel breakup, you know, he's like, like, as you were saying, like he's telling these people, you know, I'm, I'm not your martyr, and I, I don't want to be a part of it, and just like you talked about the period before he recorded the album, like, 64. Five and sixty-six, like in the Eat the Document, and I think some of those in like in the Scorsese documentary. I mean, he looked so strung out by the yep. time of um, sixty-six, and you know, so it's no wonder he he pulled away. And I think even in the film too. I remember the film commentary. I think Todd Haynes in the I'm Not There film. I don't know how you feel about that film, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's a whole other episode. The, yeah, yeah, but I'll just mention one thing he said in the commentary. I thought that he said Dylan was moving so fast through the 60s. As you said, he was just five, six steps ahead of everyone, and a crash was inevitable, you know, 
which metaphorically, I guess, or literally did happen, whatever happened with his motorcycle crash, you know, and he, he withdrew, you know, and he withdrew and was, you know, and I think reflecting on all this, you know, he had to pull out and he had to figure out where he was going to go, you know, as an artist and, and all these things. Yeah. So that's definitely in the song, you know, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in, in the third verse, uh, when he talks about I dreamed I saw St. Augustine alive with fiery breath, and I dreamed I was amongst the ones that put him out to death. Uh, you know, that could be, you know, Dylan talking about his own career. I mean, that's that's something that, that seems to be a thread throughout John Wesley Harding, is the notion of selling your soul. You know, selling your what's valuable, what's what's un intangible. Of course, I mean, the song uh, that opens the, the side two, Dear Landlord. Uh, you know, is, is is explicitly almost about, dear landlord, please don't put a price on my soul. Uh, that seems to be a running theme here: is is the idea of giving up something valuable, giving up something that's 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 you uh, for a price, and that price could literally be you know money, or it could be some fame, or it could be attention, it could be anything. But that it almost feels like that in the third verse, Dylan is once again self-critical. Uh, we're talking about himself that, you know, maybe he sold something of his own value uh, for not good reasons. And so that's the dream he's having, you know, that he's that he himself is the one that, you know, he sees himself as St. Augustine uh, because he said, you know, Augustine was a philosopher and a theologian. If you want to be generous, you could say Dylan is both those things, uh, you know. So here's here's Dylan putting himself out to death. And he's dreaming about it. And then, you know, the song ends with I bowed my head and cried, which is one of the saddest endings that Dylan's ever had for a song. But yet, I don't know. Uh, I've heard this album described as, as you know, spooky but also reassuring. Uh, in your write-up of the album, which I think is great. I love your particular write-up on the album. In fact, I'm going to quote it here. Uh, you, you, talk, you talk about it says, uh, outside the freezing wind shook the windows. I, it felt like one of those winter days when you feel like a sense of the inevitable moving quietly over your head. You're thankful and perplexed when it's gone. That was John Wesley Harding. I think that's spot on. I mean, that's the, al that's the feeling I get from this album is that it's oddly reassuring and that it's Dylan is throughout these songs is giving you, um, I mean, you know, there's a line in, in, in All in the Watchtower. There, there's a way out of here. Uh, you know, there there must be some way out of here. There's a road to get out of the trouble you're in, but this album is a lot of trouble. The the the, the skies are dark. It's scary, uh, and that's that's the the feeling I get from the, every song and some, except for the last two, which are sort of more straight up country songs. But I mean, this 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 song's is you know very explicitly that. I just feel you just feel uneasy. It just feels it leaves you, and because the the song is over so fast, you you have to sort of catch up with it. You know, you're like, you were, you know, all this imagery, and then he's moved on to the next song. <laughs> you're like, wait, wait, well, hold on, wait, I'm still unpacking the St. Augustine song. Let me just pause here for a second. That's that, and that's it is a very haunting song, and it is, um, for for it being so sad and mournful, it is something that I I find I listen to quite a lot. Yeah, me too. I definitely I I, I agree with um, everything everything you said there. Um, yeah, it is a difficult album. It, uh, like, uh, not enough so much to listen to, but the ideas in it. If you get into what Dylan's taking us through, you know, and I think there's definitely these autobiographical threads going through it. But you know, this idea of the souls being sold, you know, like in that first verse when he says, "This is for the or um, 
he's searching for the very souls who already have been sold and which I feel like that kind of connects with like a song like it's all right mom only bleeding which is you know his um kind of tirade against the middle class or capitalism or whatever you want to call it and it's almost like there he's being sympathetic a bit more sympathetic that all these people out there he observes who sold their soul for a good paycheck or whatever you know and it seems like he's it's a bit more of a compassionate view he's taking. You know, he's not really condemning people out there. He's kind of saying, okay, maybe I you know, understand why they sold their souls, you know? So I found that very interesting too, trying to save people who've already have sold their souls, you know? So I think that's another, another thing I thought about in the album. Yeah, and the song the song fades out with some wonderful harmonica. I mean, you you mentioned the the, the actual music of the song, and this is a beautiful song. Uh, the mm-hmm. melody the melody is gorgeous, and I think I might have even mentioned this on the other episode, the the All Along the Watchtower show, where we talked about the making of this record. Because apparently, this is one of those things that was so that sounds so simple to get done that I guess if you're a musician, you know how complicated it must have sounded. And there's a, a story where I think George Harrison ran into Kenny Buttry at some point after, right after this record had come out. And Harrison was sure that this took months and months and months to make because it sounded, <laughs> it sounded so clean and simple. And he said to Buttry, you know, basically, oh, boy, that must have been a real grind. How, how long did it take you to do that? And Kenny Buttry was like, oh, I think we had the whole album done in like two, three days. You know, like they just and apparently, you know, despite the fact there are now been, what, 10 or 11 bootleg series uh, issued of Dylan, you know, outtakes, there's virtually nothing from John Wesley Harding. Uh, Apparently, Dylan came in with those two guys, as you mentioned, Kenny Buttry and uh, Charlie McCoy, and just banged these songs out. They were in total sync with one another. And other than I think uh, All in the Watchtower, which did a couple of takes and one other song that had a couple takes. These things were done in virtually one version, one or two, and boom, they were done. And he had the whole, the entire album wrapped up in, in a couple afternoons, which is, that again, another thing that would never repeat itself in, in Dylan's history, where he was able to crystallize what he wanted to say uh, musically so quickly, and just boom, and out it was done, and and you know, and then of course he moved on to the next thing, but. This is this is and this album just again just stands unique in that it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything else Dylan has really ever done before or since and the way it was recorded was never really uh, done again. Yeah, that's that's a great point too, and yeah, they just sound like they just cranked it out and boom, you know, and it was out there and and I think you know Dylan's been kind of notorious for re-recording his albums and deciding to do the whole thing over again and for him to just put it out there so quickly like that must have said he it really felt right to him at the time and but also too i think the beatles in this it's interesting too you know 67 you know the summer of love and all that and and it's interesting dylan was not a part of any of that at all in fact he didn't like sergeant pepper you know in some interviews he he said it was overproduced mm-hmm. and, you know, and this and that. And and it seems like in the big picture of things, what Dylan did in 67 was almost just as influential as Sgt. Pepper, you know. And even on the Beatles themselves, so I think, mm-hmm. as you said, Harrison, they were, I think, blown away by John Wesley Harding at the same time, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, you talk about what happened with, you know, eventually country rock became a thing. You know, the, the, the birds, and they sort of headed that way, and the band was certainly already heading in that direction. So, yeah, Dylan was sort of, you know, right in the, at the height of, you know, the, the that 60s sound of things being super produced and psychedelic. Here's Dylan pointing now another way. And it's sort of funny how tired he must have been of the whole notion, because on the album cover, uh, it's a very, <laughs> very simple cover. It's just Bob... With uh, two guys, who I think were the, they're called the Bengals of Ball. They were like these local musicians, yeah. and then the guy behind him was a woodsman that Dylan, I think, <laughs> that that worked on Dylan's house. And they just took a photo, and it's just a photo of them standing there in black and white. And apparently, like people have said, oh, if you look inside the tree, you could see the Beatles' faces. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, like all this stuff. And I'm sure Dylan was like, Oh, give me a break guys. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really just a nice album of Bob out, out in the, uh, you know, on the, on the, his, uh, the lands of his, uh, of his mansion, uh, you know, just with some local fellas. That's all, you know, not everything has got 97 meanings. It's not Paul walking barefoot on Abbey road. It's just, this is just Dylan in a coat with a couple of guys. And I, you could see why he probably would grow tired of, of that, you know, endless plumbing of every single thing he was doing for some you know, deeper hidden meaning. Yeah, I remember. I think I was at a conference one time, and there was some some Dylan scholars, and one scholar was saying that the cover was actually a parody of Sgt. Pepper. You know, which <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. You know, but once again, like what you were just saying, it's like. You know, come on, you know. <laughs> Guys, give me a break, will you? Yes, yeah. Uh, in terms of live performance, this is not a song Dylan has returned to very much uh, in the 45, 60, 45, 50 odd years since its uh, creation. He's only performed it 39 times. Uh, a good chunk of them were, were in the mid-70s during the Rolling Thunder review where he would duet uh, with Joan Baez on it. In fact, you can go to YouTube and you can find a version of the two of them doing it. Um, together, uh, so and then he returned to it briefly in the 2000s. He hasn't played it since 2011. I, I imagine it's probably a tough song to do in concert because it's slow and it's sad and it's meandering. And so I, I imagine it's you know, not that Dylan ever seems terribly concerned with what the crowd's reaction is at any given point. Uh, I could just see this not being something that you know you necessarily want to whip out in concert. But you know that would be neat to hear because it's just so you know that's a that's a deep cut if you hear him do that in concert. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, like I could hear a song like this on like Modern Times or something. Like I feel like at least thematically this song would fit in with mm. some of his later, you know, themes he's been he's been into lately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the the idea the the whole, you know, notion of biblical stuff has that's been running through his stuff since the early 60s. So yeah, the idea, I mean, you know, in the late 70s as you mentioned, you know, it just became more explicit, but it's always been here, and it's you know, and it's in songs like this, and it's in stuff in modern times or whatever. So yeah, it's it's always been with him. It's he's you know, the guy's a biblical scholar, probably much like Saint Augustine. So there you go, it all comes back. You can see why he feels some kinship with with Saint Augustine. So, uh, well, that's I think that's going to do it for the song, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on, man. This was terrific. I really enjoyed this conversation about this song because this is this is not again not a not a hit. You know, this was never put out as a single or anything like that. This is this is something that probably only real deep fan, deep deep Dylan fans know. So, uh, thank you for coming on to talk about it, and thank you for the blog. I've really been enjoying it. Oh, well, thanks, Rob. Thanks, and it was yeah, it was great to discuss. Um, I dreamed my soul Saint Augustine with you. Thanks, thanks again. All right. Well, tell people where the blog is if they want to read it. They can find the blog. At, <laughs> give them the exact address here at epatrick.com. 
albumreviews.blogspot.com. All right, yeah, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, you've been doing basically one album at a time, and the last one you did, As Good As I've Been To You, which is uh, sort of like another little underrated record, but I've really been enjoying your commentary. And I said specifically the thing you wrote about John Wesley Harding, uh, I think thematically fits perfectly with the album because, uh, again, for anybody who doesn't have the album, John Wesley Harding contains uh, these liner notes by Dylan, which is a little story, a little parable, which supposedly yeah. unlocks the key to the album. And I mean, Dylan himself is a character in the show in the in the liner notes uh, where they talk about what the keys of the album are. It's almost a parody in in some ways of these things. And so, this what you wrote about the album is in the spirit of that. And I enjoyed it very much. I think it, it fits thematically with what John Husley Harding is all about as the, the story that you wrote. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, I think it, I think it's terrific. So anybody who's interested in more Dylan commentary, go visit the Eric's blog. And I said, we'll have the link to it in the show notes. Of course you can find uh, past episodes of pod Dylan on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com or on iTunes and Stitcher, all the other places. And if you want to talk about the show, go on Twitter, which is, uh, at pod underscore Dylan. So Eric, again, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thanks everybody for listening. And until the next episode, we'll see you later. Bye. He rise, he rise. He cried so loud with a voice without restraint. Come out, ye gifted kings and queens. And hear my sad complaint No martyr is among ye now Whom ye can call your own But go on your way accordingly But know you're not alone